Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Reading from Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. Jesus said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And then a reading from Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all they had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant found out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me, and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he answered. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Some things seem unforgivable. Consider this story about a teenage boy named Pat from many years ago. Pat was raised in a wealthy Christian home in England. Pat's father was a deacon. His grandfather had been a pastor. Accustomed to a lifestyle of privilege and wealth, Pat didn't take his family's Christian faith very seriously. But when he was 15 years old, his life changed forever during a home invasion robbery at his family's vacation home, Pat was kidnapped. 
Pat's captors smuggled him hundreds of miles from his home in England and they sold him as a slave. Pat found himself in a place that spoke an unfamiliar language, sold as a slave and put in charge on the sheep of an estate far away from civilization. It's not hard for us to imagine the kinds of things that Pat endured during those six years. The beatings, the abuse, the deprivation, the loneliness. During his long hours in the fields watching over the sheep in the estate, Pat started to remember all the things he had learned about Jesus as a child. And Pat started to pray. For hours and hours and hours in the fields, Pat would pray. And as he did, he awakened into a relationship with Jesus. Pat began to nurture that relationship with Jesus over six years of captivity without a Bible, without a church, without a pastor, just his memories of his faith growing up and his experiences with God in prayer. After six years of captivity, Pat escaped. But by the time he arrived home, his life was completely different than when he'd left. He was a different person. He was a victim, the victim of trauma. Some things in life seem unforgivable. We've been in a Lenten sermon series through the Lord's Prayer in this season of Lent leading up to the celebration of Easter. And today we reach the part <clears throat> of the Lord's Prayer that deals with forgiveness. You might remember that there are two different versions of this prayer in the Bible. One version that we heard read from Luke this morning. The other version we find in Matthew where it says, forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors in Matthew 6, 12. Matthew's version most likely represents an ancient Jewish concept that all of our lives are on loan from God. That because God is the creator of all of humanity, and we receive from him the gift of life. When we live our lives contrary to his plans and intentions for our lives, that puts us in God's debt and we accumulate debt before God. Perhaps Luke, because he was writing to non-Jewish readers, uses the word sins because it would be readily, more readily understood. But whether we use the word debts or sins or trespasses, we all know what this prayer is talking about. It's talking about the things in our lives that displease God and hurt other people. It's talking about our words and our actions, our thoughts, our intentions, our decisions, the things that we've done that we know that we shouldn't do, and the things that we know we should have done, but that we failed to do be difficult for anyone to pray this prayer without seeing their own need for forgiveness. In this prayer, we find two distinct halves of forgiveness. Receiving forgiveness from God, forgive us our sins, 
And then extending forgiveness to other people. For we forgive everyone who sins against us. And so let's consider both of those aspects of forgiveness. Let's start with receiving forgiveness from God. It's important that, to, to realize that the Bible actually talks about two distinct kinds of forgiveness that we receive from God. And a failure to understand the difference between these two kinds of forgiveness can lead to all kinds of confusion in our Christian lives. One kind of forgiveness that the Bible talks about that we receive from God is what we might call our forgiven status. Our forgiven status. In, in the Bible, it uses the word justify or justification to describe our forgiven status. And so Romans chapter 5 verse 1 is an example of this where it says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The, the word justify means to be made right with God. The, the word justify, as it was used back then, was a legal term that would describe someone who had been accused of a crime, but acquitted of that crime, and therefore they were justified. They were legally right in relationship to the law because they were not guilty of that crime. Their legal status was righteous. Now the difference when the Bible uses this word is we are guilty. We are guilty of violating the laws and intentions of God. But according to the Bible, instead of condemning us, Jesus, God's son, offers himself freely as a sacrifice on our behalf where he takes the penalty of our sins upon himself and he offers to us his righteousness as a gift. And so when we trust in that gift, we're justified. We're declared not guilty. That's our forgiven status. But the, there's another kind of forgiveness described in the Bible. We might call it our forgiven experience. Our forgiven experience. And this is the kind of forgiveness a lot of verses in the Bible talk about. For, for instance, 1 John 1.9 where it says... If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Why would John encourage Christians who already have a forgiven status to still confess their sins to him so they can be forgiven? Well, the answer is that John is talking about a different kind of forgiveness. He's talking about our forgiven experience. When we sin as Christians, and we all do, let's, let's not pretend here for a minute, we all do every day, when we sin as Christians, our forgiven status does not change. But what does change is our closeness in our relationship with God. And so when we confess our sins, we're not asking to be justified again, as if every time we sin, we need to be justified again and again and again. When we confess our sins, we're asking to have our relationship with God restored. We're asking to be restored to closeness and intimacy with God. Let me give you an analogy that might help. 
When I was in elementary school, I was adopted by my mom's second husband. And on that day, a Los Angeles County family court judge changed my name from Tim Brown, which was my birth name, to Tim Peck, which is now my legal name. He gave me a new birth certificate, and on that day, my mom's second husband, Mike, became my legal father. My legal status changed. But then I became a teenager, and our relationship began to go downhill, mostly because of my own fault. In fact, it got so bad that we didn't speak to each other for several years. Now let me ask you a question. During those years that we didn't speak to each other, did he stop being my father? No, my legal status remained the same. I still bore his name. I still have my birth certificate. Legally, he was still my father and I was still his son. But our experience of a relationship was non-existent until my first year of college when I picked up the phone, dialed his number, and began to apologize for the things that I had done that had wounded the relationship. That's kind of like what it's like when we sin as Christians. Our status is unchanged. We're still justified, but our relationship with our Heavenly Father is is broken and wounded until we confess our sins and we are restored to intimacy and closeness with Him. It's this forgiven experience that the Lord's Prayer is inviting us to. Through confession of sin, we experience forgiveness in prayer. Through confession, we experience the forgiveness of God in prayer. This is why the Bible repeatedly tells God's people who are already forgiven in terms of their legal status to still confess their sins to God, to experience forgiveness, even as we've done today corporately. This is an invitation to deepen our closeness and intimacy with God, to stop hiding from our faults and our failures, to to stop making excuses and, and blaming other people or blaming our circumstances, to stop pretending like they're not there because they're there, right? All of us have them. To get real with God. Did you know that through 2,000 years of Christian church history, the vast majority of Christians had built confession of sin into their daily rhythm of prayer? Daily. It's not because Christians are obsessed with sin, like that's all we can think about, but it's because we want to respond to God's invitation to go deeper, to know Him more deeply and intimately. So how might we do this? How might we integrate confession into our prayer rhythm? Well, we might start by praying the words of the psalmist in Psalm 138. Psalm 138, verses 23 and 24, the psalmist prays this. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You see, we don't start with the assumption that we know what to confess. We start by inviting the Spirit of God to search us and to reveal what God wants us to confess. 
Some of our sins are obvious to us. Uh, an unkind word I know I spoke or, or a decision I made that, that was clearly contrary to, to what God had for my life. But others of our sins, of my sins, I don't know about until the Spirit of God gently convicts me and reveals them to me. Some Christians use a practice called the prayer of examen at the end of each day. This is a practice where they ask questions as they review their day before they go to bed and invite the Holy Spirit to help them answer these questions. Questions like, where did I sense God leading today and I resisted his direction? Or where did I withhold love from people today? Or where am I most aware of the absence of the fruit of God's Spirit in my life? Or where did I act selfishly? And inviting the Spirit as we think about these kinds of questions at the end of the day is, is one way for the Spirit of God to reveal what He wants us and is inviting us to bring before Him in confession. I'd go so far as to say, that it's impossible to live the Christian life described in the New Testament without building confession of our sin into our regular prayer rhythms. Th those who neglect confession will find themselves choked off from intimacy with God. And those who neglect confession will also find themselves lacking self-awareness of the, the many subtle ways they may be injuring people in their lives or acting selfishly. Through confession, we experience God's forgiveness in prayer. But the Lord's Prayer immediately shifts from receiving forgiveness to extending forgiveness. And this is the hard part for a lot of us. And we can't ignore this connection because it's so strong in both Matthew and Luke's versions and in both Matthew and Luke's versions, the word for forgiving others is in the past tense. Forgive as we have forgiven. Think about that. When we pray this prayer, we're asking God to treat our sins against him the same way we've treated those who've sinned against us. Are you sure that's what you want to ask God? Here's what we learn from the second half of this passage. That through prayer, we not only experience God's forgiveness through confession of sin, through prayer, we also experience the grace to forgive other people. We experience grace in prayer to extend forgiveness. Now, I know that in a group this large, every person here has a different story and that each person is carrying different wounds, some carrying traumas. And so let me state up front <clears throat> that although a sermon is a good, pl good place to talk about why to forgive, it's a bad place to talk about how to forgive. Because every person's story is unique. Some hurts are shallow. They're easy to forgive. Some hurts cut deep. And some hurts are so traumatic, they alter the very fabric and direction of our lives. It's unrealistic and frankly unhealthy to try to process through deep or traumatic hurts in a 30-minute sermon. Forgiving other people can be messy business. Learning how to forgive deep hurts 
is best processed in close relationships with safe and trusted friends, sometimes with the help or direction of a pastor or a therapist or a spiritual director. So what I'm going to say about forgiving others is going to be in very broad strokes. From our reading in Matthew 18, we heard Peter ask Jesus, Jesus, how many times should I forgive someone? And the consensus back then was three times. So Peter probably thought he was being awfully gracious. He doubled that and added one up to seven times. But Jesus' answer is staggering. Not seven times, 77 times. Forgive as many times as it takes. Then Jesus tells a story that that we know of as the parable of the unforgiving servant. A king decides to settle accounts with all of his servants, calling in all all of their debts. And he calls one servant into his office who owes him 10,000 bags of gold. And in the ancient world, the phrase that Jesus uses here, the currency would be the equivalent of millions of dollars. It's hard to even imagine how this servant could have accumulated that much debt. He must have had a lot of credit cards. And there was no bankruptcy court back then. If you couldn't pay your debt when it was called in, you and your family would be imprisoned, all of your assets sold, And you'd stay there until it could be paid off. So this servant begs for patience because he can't pay his debt. But instead of giving him more time or setting up a payment plan, this king does something completely unexpected. He forgives the servant. He wipes the debt away. So now this servant is completely debt-free. But then that forgiven servant finds a second servant who owes him a hundred silver coins. And in the currency back then, this would be just a few dollars. This would be train fare for the metro. And the second servant uses the exact same words with the first servant that the first servant used with the king. But instead of forgiving the debt of the second servant, the first servant has the second servant thrown into prison. The king is furious. Because after forgiving the first servant's huge debt, it's unfathomable that he would refuse to forgive the second servant's relatively small debt. So the king has the first servant thrown out of the household into jail to be tortured until he can pay back the original debt. It's an incredible story Jesus tells here. And the actions of the king in the story represent God's actions of offering us forgiveness for a debt that we cannot pay through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. God forgives us through Jesus, a debt we could never repay. And the, second ser- or the first servant in the story represents all of us who have received that forgiveness, all of us who have received grace and been forgiven by God. And then the second servant represents everyone who sins against us as forgiven women and men. Forgiving those who sin against us is an essential part of following Jesus. So let's unpack this a little bit. I want to talk a little bit about what forgiveness is not 
and then a little bit about what forgiveness is. So a few words about what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness, forgiving others, is not pretending something evil is really good. Forgiving others is not pretending that something evil is actually good. Sometimes we try to look for the good in injustice and in evil and bad circumstances. You know, we all know that verse, Romans 8, 28, that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God and those who are called according to God's purposes. So something bad happens, we immediately start looking for the good. But if we're not careful, we end up minimizing evil and calling it good. We end up doing what the Bible warns us not to do in the book of Isaiah, chapter 5, verse 20, where the prophet says, woe to those who call good evil and evil good. Woe to those who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And friends, if you're talking to someone who is the victim of an injustice or a trauma or an evil, Trying to point out the good that might come of that is the worst thing you can do. Because when we do that, we minimize the magnitude of the injury. Forgiveness that minimizes the magnitude of sin is not forgiveness. Forgiveness is not pretending something bad is actually good. Forgiving others is also not incompatible with justice. Forgiving others is not incompatible with justice. When we forgive someone, we release them to God for God to deal with in God's justice. Sometimes we might even have to distance ourselves or break the relationship if the, the breach of trust is so big or if it's become unsafe or unhealthy for us to be in relationship with that person. A couple of weeks ago, one of my friends named Jennifer, who lives in the Pacific Northwest, began to speak publicly about abuse that she experienced as a teenager from her youth pastor. Jennifer gave me permission to share her story with you today. The abuse started when she was 15 years old and it ended when she was 17. And when she reported the abuse to her church when she was 17 years old to her church leaders, they told her she needed to forgive and forget and never speak of it again. Her abuse was not reported to the police, her parents were not informed, and the perpetrator didn't experience any consequences from his actions. Those church leaders thought forgiveness was incompatible with justice, but friends, it is not. That is not forgiveness. Sweeping evil under the rug and pretending it's not there is not forgiveness. People's sins often set into motion consequences in their lives that cannot be stopped. And forgiving that person means we choose to move on with our life, but it doesn't erase the consequences of their decisions. Sometimes those consequences have life-changing implications. Sometimes they have legal implications. Our decision to forgive does not halt those consequences because forgiveness is not incompatible with justice. So what is forgiveness? Forgiving others is a response to God's grace in our lives. 
It's a response to God's grace in our lives. The king in this story, Jesus tells, is scandalous because no king back then would ever consider forgiving such an enormous debt. That kind of king wouldn't be king for very long. But God is entirely unlike kings. He is entirely unlike people. It is God's very nature to show grace. We have to work at grace. We have to learn it. It comes naturally to God. God has more sin committed against him as the creator of the universe than we will ever have committed against us as individuals. And Jesus' story tries to capture this by this contrast of millions of dollars with train fare, although when we are the object, it doesn't feel like train fare, does it? Sometimes I hear people use the phrase, find it in your heart to forgive. Friends, if I looked in my heart to forgive, I would be looking for a very long time because it's not there. There is no forgiveness in my heart unless it is placed there by the grace of God. And it's placed there by the grace of God through prayer. Forgiveness is a response to God's grace. Forgiveness is also for our own ultimate good. Forgiving others is for our own ultimate good. People who hurt us deeply, when they do that and we refuse to work through it, that person's sin continues to victimize us day after day, week after week, year after year. And over time, we find ourselves trapped in hurt and anguish, overcome by feelings of bitterness and a desire to get even. In Jesus' story of the unforgiving servant, the first servant ends up tortured in prison. Well, if you've lived in unforgiveness before, that's what it feels like. It feels like being tortured in prison. Over time, unforgiveness becomes like a toxin that seeps into all of our relationships. Over time, we become cynical, closed off to others, paralyzed and stuck. It's in our own best interests to forgive. And finally, forgiving others is both a choice and a process. It's both. It's not either or. It's both a choice and a process. Forgiveness begins by moving our posture towards forgiveness. But that then leads to a process, and for very deep and traumatic hurts, a very, very long process sometimes of sorting through our own hurts and releasing the person or the groups of people who have hurt us into the hands of God for God to deal with. We might decide to move towards forgiveness by praying a prayer that's like this, God, I cannot forgive. God, I don't even want to forgive. God, give me the grace to want, to want, to forgive. And when we pray that kind of prayer, we move our posture towards forgiveness. And we enter into a process. It's a process that we often need help from. We need help from trusted friends. Sometimes we need help by meeting with others who have gone through the same kinds of experiences we have. For for traumatic hurts, we might need a therapist or a counselor. And it's it's a hard process. It's a lonely process. But the process doesn't begin 
until we make the decision to move towards forgiveness, to open ourselves to the grace of God doing within us something that we cannot do for ourselves. Forgiving others is both a choice and the process. Now, I know I've painted in some very broad strokes here. And if you're here and and you go, "Ah, I need to do that, I need to dig into this more, I want to recommend a book to you by uh, Dr. David Augsburger called The New Freedom of Forgiveness. Um, And it deals with all kinds of situations where we might need to forgive. I also put up on the slide um, the intake line for our counseling center here at Lake Avenue Church. If you want some professional assistance in helping you move your posture. But Augsburger's book talks about how forgiveness works in marriage. How it works when we're the victim of prejudice or racism. How forgiveness works with enemies. Because forgiveness is an essential part of Christian prayer, both receiving forgiveness from God through confession of our sin and extending the grace to forgive others. A famous politician once told John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, that he never forgives, to which Wesley replied, then I hope you never sin. And I would add, I hope you never pray this prayer. Pat had to work through his own process of forgiveness after he escaped human trafficking and returned to England. Pat's life was different, but he had profoundly experienced the grace and mercy of God during his captivity. Pat felt called to the ministry, so he went to seminary. And truth be told, Pat did not do well in seminary. His formal education ended when he was 15 and he was kidnapped. But he persevered. Until he finally graduated and then started the process to become ordained as a pastor. And while he was in that long ordination process, one night Pat had a dream. It was a dream about one of his captors, about one of the people who perpetrated abuse against him. And in that dream, that captor said, come and live among us once again. Patrick woke up and interpreted that dream as God's calling for him. He shared that dream with his spiritual leaders and they affirmed that calling. And so now in his 40s, more than two decades after his captivity, Patrick left in the 6th century and arrived in Ireland the very people who had held him captive, abused and trafficked him. And although many of the historical details of St. Patrick's life are unclear and sketchy, we do know that Patrick arrived in Ireland in the 6th century and spent the rest of his life sharing the message of Jesus with the very people who had traumatized him. He, more than any other follower of Jesus, was responsible for introducing the Christian faith to the Irish people at a time when Ireland was characterized by violence, brutality, and anarchy. And this weekend, as we celebrate St. Patrick's Day yesterday, and the rest of the world celebrates with parades and green beer and Guinness, we remember the power of prayer. We remember the power of the grace of God and what God's grace can do in the life of just one person who confesses their sins to God and receives the grace. 
to forgive others. Forgive us our sins, for we forgive everyone who sins against us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. And in this space, Lord, I know that there are probably some who are troubled by this message because it has stirred something in them. May this sanctuary, may this place of worship be a safe space for the process to unfold. Thank you for Lake Avenue Church. Thank you for the resources that we have. And thank you that we can walk with one another in forgiveness. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.